0: Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The thinking atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea.
1: The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof.
0: Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together
1: for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way.
0: Assume nothing. Question everything. And start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast. Hosted by Seth Andrews.
1: For a whole lot of people, as the holiday season approaches, it's a time of family and food and light and music and joy, etc. But for a whole lot of other people, it is a time of anxiety and stress, even depression, mental health, mental illness. It's so important that we talk about these things and destigmatize. Wondrium has a series that does that very thing. It's called Finding strength in mental health. And I'm convinced that one of the solutions, one of the ways that we destigmatize is to learn the science and tell the stories. And finding strength in mental health is loaded with stories. People like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, people who publicly gone through their own journeys. Wandrium has a bunch of resources, over 240 different lessons on the subject of mental health. Give your mental well-being the boost it needs with Wondrium. Right now, Wondrium is offering my listeners 50% off your first three months. That is half off when you sign up for your first quarterly plan. A fantastic deal. Sign up today with my special URL to get this offer. Go to Wondrium.com/Seth. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M.com/Seth. Wondrium.com Seth. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Seth. Wondrium.com slash Seth. Well, my friends, if you ever thought science was boring, buckle up. It's, it's going to be a ride. I'm talking here with biologist Forrest Valkai. His website, ValkyLabs.com. He's got a popular YouTube channel. I've linked that in the description box. And Forrest and I had a conversation on video recently at my home. The YouTube video version is also linked in the description box in case you want to watch it. But it's about an hour-long conversation about tons of amazing stuff. So sit back, crank it up, and let's do some science. Forrest Valkai. Me. Which sounds like a great Game of Thrones name. Thank you.
2: Thank you. That's like, what I was going for.
1: The hero we need, especially after season eight. <laughs> the hero that we need to save the series, right? So to you agree? I mean, just a digression, but you—you you were as disappointed. Oh, it
2: was awful. It made me not want to watch the new House of the Dragon thing because I saw how much they just phoned it in for that whole last series, just trying to you know milk the last drops out of the cash cow
1: and get it over with. Like I don't want to see what else they do now. You know? Well, it yeah. Sucked. The problem is, is that when I express my displeasure. Some people are like, well, it just didn't end the way you thought it would. I thought it wanted. would end well. Yeah, I thought it would be good. I'm <laughs> like, so no, right. Maybe it's more about the characters acting true to character.
2: Exactly. Dude, Tyrion was my hero the whole time. I looked up to him so much because he always was like three steps ahead, of everybody. And he was always witty. And, it, and even when he did things wrong, it was because he thought too much, not too little. And then at the end, he's just completely brainless and just doesn't know what's going on? What is that?
1: Uh, like, uh, Cersei is looking out the window at King's Landing, yeah. watching the entire city being torched. And by the way, spoilers. Yeah, in case you what's haven't seen it on. by now. I-, I have no sympathy for you. <laughs> she just keeps looking. Like, she doesn't say anything. She's like, well, like it's almost like it'll work out. You told- yeah,
2: the person who's been absolutely like grabbed the bull by the balls the entire series. Like, t- 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 totally taking charge of everything. And now just feckless, uh, whatever happens. Like, oh my god, it was so lame, I'm dude. sorry
1: to digress, but it, we, uh, just Game of Thrones. It's we should have worked button. on it. Seth it's a hot I, button. They should have hired us. It's, I feel wounded by it, so I had to say something. Exactly. It was a missed opportunity all around. All right, so uh, I made the mistake of, <laughs> of asking you your title <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. what your area of expertise is. Mm-hmm. All right, fine. Yeah, yeah. What do
2: you do? So I usually just say I'm a biologist because it's much easier than getting into the nitty gritty details, but uh, I, I have degrees in education, general biology, integrative biology with an organismic concentration, which we can get into what that means if you want, um, and liberal arts, which I got that degree because I had a bunch of extra bio credits that just went there. Uh, and now I'm a, a graduate student studying bioanthropology, which is the biology and evolution of our species of humans. Um, so I'm a biologist, I study evolution and humans, and by extension, human evolution. Um, So sometimes I'll say, I'll I'll use the word evolutionary biologist because that is one of my specialties, or I might use bioanthropologist, but more often than not, I just say biologist, educator, that's what I do. Good luck
1: with that business card,
2: man. Yeah, yeah, just just a million years. You can go into more detail too on some of the stuff that I'm qualified to call myself. You could call me a zooarchaeologist or a paleoanthropologist
1: what, just, just add on all these different. You know what I mean? Just stop. It's madness. No, just stop. <laughs> but, but you are a teacher. I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm so quite, I'm you a, you're an educator. I'm an educator. You're also yes. an educator online. You got your YouTube channel. So I'm browsing some of your stuff, and this is a while back. And I saw this, what the secret science of the Bible yeah. clip that you had been addressing. Yeah, it's like a Bible code kind of thing.
2: Yeah, or? it was a dude who wrote to me on Twitter demanding that I like drop everything and buy his book about how evolution isn't true and the Bible is proof of God and all this stuff. And uh, I explained to him, you know, politely. I thought that. Nobody owes this dude time or attention. I'm not going to do this. And then he started like spamming every post that I was even mentioned in with like this YouTube video that he put out proving that God's real and evolution isn't with the Bible because there's all this secret science in the Bible. And the secret science of the Bible was stuff like that there are laws of physics. Because it says in the Bible that there's like natural law and that proves that God must be real because there's no way that people knew that there was like order or patterns around them until the Bible was written. And like, it was just madness, dude. It, there's, there's, there is no real notable science in the Bible because it was written in the Iron Age. So why would there be? It makes no sense. It would be like me pointing back and saying that the origin of species is all we know about evolution. We have 200 years of further research since that time. We have 2,000 years of further research since the Bible, which is why you don't sprinkle the blood of a dove if you have leprosy anymore. <laughs> we don't need to do
1: that. We know like, what medicine uh, let's is. Let's tell the Bible authors, maybe you should like call the Sumerians or the sure. Egyptians. Lee, no, have a conversation. Oh yeah. This yeah. is not original thought. <laughs> I've always been struck by the uh, Bible code types, because you think about the sadism. Of the idea, because there's a lot of writing out there, you know, secret hidden Bible code uh-huh. discovered by an apologist or expert, somebody smarter than all the rest of us.
2: Oh, naturally, yeah, you know, they have the they have the secrets. They You've have got a, like a direct every
1: line, thirteenth letter tied together, or you look at the second word of every chapter tied together. And I always thought to myself, God purposefully took, with heaven and hell in the balance, he took this critical life and death message. And he decided to make it as hard as possible to yes. figure
2: out, right? So you have to do this weird, complicated dance. It's like, imagine if me, like if I, I get hired to go out into schools all the time. That's my job. I go to schools and libraries and colleges and universities. and I give big talks or, or workshops, something like that. That's my main job. Imagine if like every fourth or fifth of those, I just taught that plate tectonics isn't real or or that, that that the moon is actually literally made of cheese and i taught that to children and just like you know if you look at it if you really read between the lines the actual science is there i wouldn't be hired again it would be madness but you have this dude that made the whole universe and laid down the exact rules of how to not be burned for all eternity and that's got to be this tricky fiddly little thing that you have to interpret correctly and decipher right like
1: what a shit job. Why? Who would do that? Why? It's madness. So evolution, biology, you do a lot of this type of stuff. Yeah. You've done a Google search and typed the word evolution in, I'm sure. Oh, for sure, You've yeah. seen how stacked it is, right? I mean, I type evolution into Google, and it's all of these creationist or ID, intelligent design sites who have done the, I don't know, the meta tags or the, you know, whatever you call them, uh-huh. evolution news. Like, I log on, I'm reading evolution news, and it's an ID. Yeah, yeah. It's an anti-evolution website, right? So you bumped into this kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Because that's
2: the last desperate attempt that these people are making now to remain relevant, is they're trying to sound as scientific as possible. And they're trying to use scientific principles and scientific ideas to discredit all of science. And when they find some science that... Almost sort of sounds like what they want, then science is the only way to do things. But when science says something they don't like, then all of science is discredited and, and, and not believable. And it's all, you know, it depends on who's paying for the funding, paying for the grants, depending on what what you come up with. But when it's a creationist research center, then they are the most objective, unbiased people in the world. You can only trust them. It's uh yeah, it's madness. It's just them trying so hard to convince everybody that the best thinkers in the entire world are all wrong, and they are the only ones that have the right answer. And also,
1: they are humble and biased. So I'm browsing their website, and I see this headline. I actually made a note of it. First of all, you can usually hear the word evolutionist. Yeah, it's they, always a red flag. Yeah. <laughs> the Darwinist, Yo, or oh the evolutionist, God. right? A billion genes and not one beneficial mutation. Oh, wow. What's your response, right? The whole entropy thing. No, nothing can mutate in a beneficial way. Yes, no.
2: Yeah, so I would immediately immediately have a million questions like, whose genes and how are they tested? And also, how do you determine what is or isn't beneficial? Like, there's a million questions there. But also, let's say that's true. Let's say you fill a billion genes and you don't find a single beneficial mutation. Radical. The human genome is about three billion letters long, so... Maybe you blew it on um, which set you looked at, or maybe you weren't looking at the right person in the right place. Every single one of us has around 300 or so random mutations that are unique to us. So which ones did you count as beneficial and which ones didn't you? The fact of the matter is, like, it's not really hard at all to find some beneficial mutations and to point to them as great examples of how evolution works. So like, for example, you and I are white, we probably have European ancestry, we're probably lactose tolerant. There's a good chance that you and I can, I can say, I for sure, I love dairy products, I can eat them all day long. That makes us the weird ones in terms of like human populations, because humans in general, as, the, as we evolved, we have this condition called lactase non-persistence, which is the fancy term for lactose intolerance. We have a gene that produces an enzyme called lactase that is specifically there to break down the milk sugar lactose. You can't digest milk, you can't digest lactose without lactase. And so your body makes lactase until around age two, and then that gene shuts off, and you stop producing lactase for the rest of your life. And so most people are lactase in, are lactose intolerant because they have no reason to not be. But then our ancestors became pastoralists and we started producing milk as a source of protein and a source of nutrition well into adulthood. We made things like cheese and, 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 you know, uh, preserved milks and all sorts of different ways. We drank milk all the time. And so European populations mutated. And now we have what's called lactase persistence. That gene doesn't shut off anymore. And we make lactase our whole lives. And so we are lactose tolerant. We can produce this enzyme and drink milk as much as we want. That makes us weird. We're mutants, we're strange. And now if you look at the global population, populations that have historically used, you know, cows or sheep or goats or whatever for milk, mainly European populations, have this gene. And most of the rest of the world doesn't. That's a beneficial mutation. Unless you don't drink milk, and then it's kind of whatever, right? And so that's the thing about when you talk about mutations—they can either be beneficial, or they can be deleterious, or they can be silent. They do nothing at all, and it it's completely contextual 99% of the time as to which one of those it is. Because you would you know, consider probably lactase non-persistence—you you you would you might consider that a, a silent mutation if you never were around milk and it didn't matter anymore. You wouldn't even measure it. So it is a mutation that does a thing, but, like, does it matter, you know? So, like, that's something that people don't understand when we talk about beneficial mutations. When we talk about fitness or adaptation, creationists and people who don't understand evolution, but I repeat myself, uh, they tend to pretend that uh, evolution is orthogenic, that it has a goal in mind, that it's a ladder, and that there are the most evolved and least evolved species, you know what I mean? And that's just not true. It's completely contextual. When you gain fitness, when you have a beneficial mutation in one environment, that is a deleterious mutation that loses fitness in another environment. The best boa constrictor with the best boa constrictor genes dies in Antarctica. As much as it gains fitness for the Amazon, it's losing fitness over there. So you would call every beneficial mutation a deleterious mutation in another environment. That's that's all evolution is. It's well, you bring
1: mut- up a great point. People often hear survival of the fittest and they think, oh, the strongest, right? The strong crush the weak, Mm -hmm. that makes no sense. You know, then you get into social Darwinism and all these other things, which I think is a distraction, right? Because fittest doesn't mean strongest necessarily, right? Correct.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's about meeting the requirement of your environment. So if your environment calls for, say, for example, like being able to see as ours does, then yeah, having a mutation that damages or destroys your eyes or your vision that would be deleterious. But if you're a Mexican blind cavefish or a blind cave salamander, any of these cave species that live in complete darkness their whole lives, eyes are a liability. They don't provide any benefit, you cannot see anyway, and these are things that could get damaged, or infected, or torn out, or hurt, and could cause serious problems for you. So mutations that cause you to lose your vision or even your very eyes are now actually beneficial mutations in this context. So there is no best species. There is no peak of evolution. And like you said, survival of the fittest doesn't mean physical fitness. It means you fit into your niche, into where you're supposed to be living. And if that niche changes, you have to change along with it. And that's what selection pressure is all about, is if you do X, you die. If you don't
1: do Y, you die. And that's the whole gambit. That's the game. I remember there was an example, I don't remember the name of the moth, but it was. there were lighter colored and darker colored. And the darker colored moths looked more like the bark of the trees that they yeah. would rest on, right? Peppered moths. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. I figured you would know the answer <laughs> it's to that question. That's a very common example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So obviously the ones that are more easily seen by predators, right? The lighter colored on the dark bark, they're like, oh, look, a moth. And they go and pick them off. So that means what the darker colored moths actually breed and survive their genes, their genetic fitness then allows the progeny to pass on. That would be uh, survival of the fittest.
2: Yeah, exactly. They're, They're fitting into their environment. They're not tough moths. They just look better. You know what I mean? They fit better into where they're supposed to be. And that's the really important thing is that it's all about reproduction. Reproduction is the name of the game in evolution. A lot of people like to pretend that it's all about survival. Evolution doesn't care about survival. Evolution cares about reproduction. If you die the moment after you reproduce, that's totally fine, as long as you reproduce. And so, like in this case, you have this population of moths, and the ones that are able to reproduce, the ones that don't get eaten, survive. And that's what's really critical to understand, is that populations evolve. Individuals don't evolve. You're never going to have this situation where it's like, oh, well, my tomato plant hasn't produced watermelons yet, so evolution isn't true, right? It's the whole population carrying on their genes. An easy way to explain it is a change in the heritable traits of a population over the course of multiple generations. And that's an easy way to
1: explain it because that's literally the definition of evolution. But that's not what we were taught. Like, how ridiculous would it be for you to wake up tomorrow and sprout wings? Yeah, yeah. Because then you evolved, right? Yeah. No, it may... expect a rabbit to evolve into a you know gazelle and mm-hmm. you know all those types of things that are just a, now. You look back and you think, wow, they were what they were doing though is they were teaching us to laugh at science and scientists. It was really a defense mechanism for bad ideas. Yeah. Well, and then that's how you get the next generation of flat earthers and anti-vaxxers. Is that you teach them that if science
2: says something that doesn't make sense to you in that exact moment, then it must be crazy. And if you can think your way halfway out of a paper bag, then you're a better scientist than these people who say all these crazy nuanced things, because if it doesn't have a clear, easy definition, then clearly it's just wrong. And you have teachers teach these, like when you see that, uh, that diagram of like the, the monkey that kind of levels up into a human, that was, that's called a, a, a diagram was made by a, a guy named Rudolf Zalinger and it's called the March of Progress. And it was originally published in Time magazine to show this emerging science of how great evolutionary theory is coming along and how bioanthropology is growing and how we're understanding more about the evolution of our species. And it is a gross oversimplification, not only of the data that we have, but also how evolution works, because it's not a straight line. It's a tangled bush with all sorts of branches. Sometimes species break off, sometimes they live alongside each other for a while, sometimes they merge back together, sometimes one dies off and the other one doesn't. Sometimes the species just shifts and changes, but we still call it the same species. Sometimes there's disruptive selection, sometimes there's directional selection, sometimes there's stabilizing selection. There's all sorts of different ways this can work, but it's really easy and it looks nice on a, a magazine cover or in an advertisement when it's this and then it was this and then it was this. And it gives people this idea that there was the australopithecines and then they all pooped out a Homo habilis and then they all died. And then they all crapped out a Homo erectus and then they all died. And then they all gave birth to us and then they all
1: died. And now here we are. And that doesn't make any sense. We like the graph. I mean, even if we disagree with it, because it's simple, right? You got the fish that crawls out, and then before you know it, he's hunched over, and now he's a primate, now or an ape or a chimpanzee, and then he turns into, you know, Hugh Jackman, right? (laughs) We're like, aha, you know, from goo to the zoo to you. I love that. That's great. (laughs) Using that. (laughs) Um, Did you ever see the movie Annihilation? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, Which was a movie, really. It was kind of a commentary about how evolution. Happens but doesn't really care, which takes us back to evolution didn't wake up and say, I would like to become this, or yeah. I would like to move living creatures to that. Evolution just sort of happens in this wild, wacky way. It's, it's what's
2: crazy to me, and what I wish more people would just consider is that it's not only like, it, of course, it's a totally blind random, well, not really random, but it's a totally blind process. The way that we usually describe natural selection is the non-random selection of random mutations. So it's semi pseudo random, whatever you want. But like, it, it, it is something that you can track and trace and make sense of. But what really blows me away is that it is the most logical conclusion to like how life works. If you wanna understand evolution by natural selection, if you wanna understand the basics of neo-Darwinian evolution, it, it, it really is just a logical system. We know that genes exist, and they're passed on from parent to offspring. I have the DNA that makes my body, each gene does a specific thing, that's a gross oversimplification, but whatever, and I pass these on to my offspring. We know that genes come in different flavors called alleles. So there's not just one gene for hair color, eye color, skin color, height, weight, whatever. Like there's a variety of these things. And there's also phenotypic plasticity where some of these things can kind of vary depending on your environment. So there's different ways these things can work. And also it makes sense to say that different alleles are better suited for life in different environments. Like I said a minute ago, the best boa constrictor is going to die in Antarctica and the best penguin is going to die in the Amazon. So if you have the best alleles, it doesn't matter because the term best is totally dependent on your environment. If you can understand those three things, then evolution is the logical next step. If I get alleles passed on to me from my parents that don't benefit me, that don't allow me to reproduce, then those alleles will not spread anymore and the population will no longer have them. And so that's evolution. It's a change in the heritable characteristics of the population from one generation to the next. If those alleles benefit me tremendously and I have lots of babies because of it, then over successive generations, the population will shift in this way and the total, what we call the allele frequency, the rate at which these alleles pop up in the whole metagenome, will change. A change in the heritable characteristics of the population over multiple generations. That is the only way that can happen. It would make no sense to say, I had a random mutation, and let's make some extreme thing, and I was born you know, without legs and with, with, with half an eyeball, and, and, I, I, and my, my penis fell off when I was three, and I, I, can't, I can never have babies, and now all of the children that I don't have look just like me, and it's totally random, and then we all had wings and became birds. That makes no sense when you really think about those three basic things. If genes are passed on to offspring, and different genes, different alleles, work better in different environments, then evolution has to come next. It's just as long as there is reproduction,
1: there will be evolution. I see you were sitting across from me, Adam. But don't take that. You're like a Jack Russell Terrier. You're just <laughs> like, you're just 1,000% go, go, go. Is this how you teach? You have yeah, no I, idea are, are, are how much I'm inst- reining it in right now. Are you?
2: I'm doing so, so good to
1: sit still. I want to be up and about, man. I'm, I'm right. oh. So uh, when you're in school, I mean, are you, is this how you instruct? Do you this, try yeah, to yeah. transfer that enthusiasm for science Absolutely. to your kids, Absolutely. Right? This
2: is how I am when I'm learning and teaching.
1: I, well, I, tell me about school, because I'm leading you somewhere on this. I, I couldn't tell. <laughs> when we When we talk about education, especially in this country, it seems to be more and more about teaching people how to memorize just enough to take a test, forget it, get out of school, get on with life. Absolutely. Where's the passion? Where's the enthusiasm? They're sitting in a desk under the lights. Talk to me about American education. Yes, no? I'm not a fan. (laughs) You'd be surprised. (laughs) That's why I'm not a classroom educator. I don't have like one set classroom
2: where I just teach one thing day in and day out, and then we have to meet the requirements of that test and everything. Because that's how I went to school, and it sucked. Like we, we, it was all about benchmark testing. You, like you said, you learn just enough to pass the government test and then you move on to the next thing. Um, we, in this country, when we send kids to school, we're teaching them is how to sit down and shut up and listen to the person in charge, that they are impotent to change the situation they're in. You do what you're told, you read what you're told, you learn what you're told. We teach them what to think instead of how to think we teach them to move when the bell rings, and to sit, and to just totally shut off this part of your brain and open up this part of your brain. We're training factory workers. We're training people, and no, no shame on factory workers. But like that's, we're training people to just do what they're told and think the way that they're supposed to think, and to not ask questions, and to not be themselves, and to not be outside of the box. And like very often, math and science gets ridiculed because we think it's more important that you learn how to solve a problem than necessarily getting the right answer. And that sounds kind of ridiculous when you think about it, when you come from like a a, a mastery mindset of like, well, you have to know the information. What's the point in doing this if you don't know the right thing? But like, if you give me the right answer, but you came to that answer in a terrible way, then you're gonna use that terrible way for the next question. And you're gonna get a very wrong answer the rest of the time. So this one answer doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really work for me. It's like asking, you know, what's the perimeter of a square with a length of, of four? on each side, you could accidentally do area and come up with the same answer. So it's a crappy question, right? That's not a good enough way to gauge intelligence. And just just because you got that right doesn't necessarily mean that you know what you're talking about. And so in science, what we're teaching is how to think, not what to think. How to ask questions. How do we know what we know? How can you go out and probe the universe and learn absolutely anything using the same methodology? And we do, like, it's so important to lead with passion. Rather than saying the essentialist model of teaching to say, you need to know X, Y, Z, so these are the things we're gonna cover. As long as you can memorize this, you're fine. It should be done with question-based learning, with a progressivist mindset of like, there are answers to be known about everything, even the stuff we don't have answers for yet. You can go learn it. Teach the cool stuff first. I love teaching the most mind-blowing, crazy lessons in science and then going and backtracking and saying, now here's how we know that, and then teaching the history, because then they care about why they know what they know, right? I I can sit here and talk to you about the structure of an atom. Who gives a shit? But if I talk to you about the history of how we discovered it and the implications in your real life, that matters. And that's going to change the way you see absolutely everything. Literally every physical object around you is now magical and wonderful and thought-provoking instead of just... Oh, what's a proton again? You know, like yeah, that yeah. Sucks. You're
1: just checking the box for the test and then you forget and move yes. on. I'm trying to think of who it was who talked about how children are born scientists. Yeah. Right? I mean, born scientists. That was Neil deGrasse Tyson. Is it? Yeah. And, and then we just sort of crush the curiosity. Yep. We, I think the way he phrased it, I'm going to
2: shamelessly steal his thing. It's okay. so important. He said that we spend the first two years of a child's life teaching them how to walk and talk. And then we spend the next 18 years telling them to shut up and sit down. And you know, we, we let them, they, You know, kids, a kid is a scientist because what they want to do is what scientists do. They want to take things apart, they want to break things open, they want to put things in their mouth, they want to turn it upside down, they want to throw it on the floor. You, know, you look at a kid in a high chair, they knock a, a, a bottle over something that falls on the ground and then you put it back and they do it again and they do it again, they do it again. Two things are happening. One, they're exploring gravity. They're learning, when I do this, this is what happens. And if you ever want to have a really fun time, Take a baby in a high chair Has done that the 18th time, give them a helium balloon, watch it go up, and watch their brain explode. <laughs> but also, they're playing. You've made a game for them. If I do this, then Dad's gonna come over and put it back. And that's hilarious. Look, it's a fun game that we're playing together. It's like catch, you know what I mean? And they're exploring relationships. They're exploring physics. They're exploring cause and effect. They're ex- they are learning about the universe that they're in. And you as an adult see that and you're like, Oh, what an obnoxious little turd just trying to make me, you know, make, Oh, you're pulling all the petals off the flowers. I paid a lot of money for those flowers. How dare you? Those are expensive. Oh, you broke a glass. Well, this is now a mess that I have to clean up. And you don't see it as the exploration that it is. If somebody with the mindset of a grown up were to go to the Hadron Collider, you would see it as a big mess making machine that just costs a bunch of money and all it does is smash stuff. But if you see it through the eyes of a scientist, Somebody who's growing up every single day that never had to get old, that is still, a, a scientist as a child that survived, that, that got so excited about the universe that it never went away. That's the most amazing wonder machine in the whole wide world and you get to break stuff and see what comes out, how wild is that? And it's the exact same thing as a kid who's you know tearing up the plants because he wants to see what's inside of them. What do you think we do in a
1: botany lab, dude? That's exactly what we're doing. So when I'm a kid and I'm strapping three bottle rockets together, to see what happens, <laughs> and I set the uh, neighbor's field on fire. This happened. I was being a scientist. I, exactly. I was exploring my world. Precise. You, you were oh,
2: experimenting. Yeah. You were having fun. You were learning. And that's the thing. Like th- To play is the best way to learn. To-, to go out and have fun and explore and ask hard questions and get weird and get messy and make mistakes and get uncomfortable, that's the best way to learn. Because you have your little comfort zone where you know what you know, but that's not where anything interesting is. You can make that grow and the coolest stuff will still be on the outside of it. That's the whole point of science. Every time you answer a question, Two more questions pop up. It's like a hydra. You can never defeat it. You're always going to be more and more curious.
1: And you're never going to be bored. But one of your apologist interlocutors is going to be like, well, science changed its mind here. And science was wrong about that, right? Yeah. And thank goodness, because that's why you're not having your blood
2: drained out of your body to balance your humors when you get a cold. Because science changed its mind. We learned new stuff and we changed our mind. How wonderful. Imagine if you were on trial for murder. And somebody said what a creationist would say, you know? Oh, well, I mean, I didn't see it happen. So, like, you know, were you around when that, when that went on? How can we possibly know? Well, I read it in this pamphlet that he did it, so he did it. Like, does that is that a fair trial? Is it fair to say, well, here's new evidence proving that this guy wasn't there, yeah, but, I mean, the evidence always changes its mind. Who are you really going to trust? Me or this random pamphlet? Like, there's no way for it to be fair with that situation. You're either going to let somebody off the hook because you don't know how to think, or you're going to hold somebody accountable because you somebody told you to. You're never going to have a fair and realistic trial unless you can move your mind with the evidence. And it's the same thing with Science. If I can prove to you, proof positive, that, you know, pick your favorite thing, that that plate tectonics is real, that gravity is real, that cells are real, that atoms are real, these are all theories that tell us about the universe around us, then that should be good for you to know that there's all this evidence for it. And if I find new evidence proving that those things aren't real, you would be really dumb to continue believing the thing that we've now proven isn't real, right? That would be kind of silly in any case.
1: You just brought us full circle back to flat earth, probably, didn't you? Oh my god! Did you see the documentary? Uh, It's called Behind the Curve. Bunch of flat earthers set up experiments. Mm -hmm. And the experiments proved that the earth was not flat, and they said, well, we need to go back and fix our experiments. Yes. Right? Yes. The, the, the problem is we're, the, our experiments are, are incorrect. You know, we have to be results-oriented. Let's make the result a guarantee. which Precisely. Is, but I mean, back to my original point, this is seen as a weakness, science changing. It doesn't know with a capital K. It doesn't have the answer with a capital A. Therefore, it is unreliable. But I always think of that line, when you know better, you do better, right? And science is always sharpening its knives, so yeah. to speak. And I see that as a net positive.
2: Yeah, there's no other... Like, I, what I can't get around this is that when you talk about this kind of thinking, whether it be creationism, whether it be flat earth, whether it be anti-vax, whether it be whatever, any kind of anti-science rhetoric, there's never a situation where you would use that same line of thinking anywhere else. There's never a time when you're gonna say, I learned new information that proved me wrong, therefore I was right in the beginning and this new information must totally be a lie. You wouldn't do that at any other time. They're always making a special exception using a totally different line of thinking for this one thing that they want so badly to hold on to. If you had a mechanic that told you putting Cheerios in your gas tank make your car go faster, it doesn't matter how long you've known that mechanic, it doesn't matter how old that mechanic is, it doesn't matter how many degrees and awards that mechanic has, they're a bad frickin' mechanic. And you should listen to the next person that's like, here's what the evidence shows, let's try
1: gasoline. Since we're talking about misinformation, bad ideas, as opposed to scientific ideas, you know, ideas that have been tested and uh, proven to work, We got uh, the pseudoscientists, they're everywhere. The internet's made it worse. People like Dr. Oz, right, who has a pedigree. I don't know, I'm trying to think if it was Johns Hopkins or wherever he's from, and he looks great on paper, and then he speaks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you saw a clip a while back. He's talking about how his own urine tasted. And I think he and his wife did Reiki healing, which is like uh, some sort of an energy field. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. You got to manipulate somebody's life force or whatever. Chakras
1: yeah. and, uh, you know, all of this light therapy. And and I don't know, you get into the pseudoscientists. Yeah,
2: this, this is why I always say, you know, a, a degree doesn't make you a scientist. Uh, There is no qualification or certification for being a scientist. The dictionary definition of scientist is somebody who has expert knowledge in or is studying science. Anybody can be a scientist. But like I just said a minute ago with a mechanic, if you have a really terrible idea and a terrible outlook of your field, you're bad at it. Right. There are plenty of bad scientists out there with PhDs and there are plenty of great bi- scientists out there that have a bachelor's degree or, or, or less because they're able to follow what the evidence says and actually do their job.
1: Yeah. But first, how do I
2: know the difference? Like I see a PhD and I'm like, aha. It's, it's really easy to fall prey to that. And that's one of the reasons why pseudoscience is so prolific on the internet. It's because anybody can get up there and say, well, I have XYZ certification, or I read in a book by some dude, or I interpret this to mean this, that. Anybody who speaks with any kind of authority and is kind of charismatic in what they're saying can very easily trick a bunch of people who don't know how science actually works, which isn't their fault. Lots of people don't need to know that into thinking that some magnificent, fantastical, ridiculous thing is real. And you see people like Dr. Oz, who there have been you know, actual accountings of his work that show that more than half of everything he says on TV is not freaking true, has no scientific backing, but it sounds really pretty, and it's the same kind of branding that you see on these, you know, uh, uh, whatever, if you eat this melon, then it'll remove the radiation in your body and, and, and stuff, or, uh, 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 you know, bacteria and viruses are actually just parts of our own cells that broke apart because our body is detoxing and we all detox at the same time of year because we're coded to the sunlight. And that means that's why we have a flu season because we're all (laughs) breaking down our old toxic cells. And that's what looks like viruses. and, And like, I'm saying these things, I'm not making this up. This is shit that I've heard. And like, this sounds just good enough and has just enough fancy, scary words in it that somebody who doesn't know anything about biology is going to think it makes sense. And that's what's scary, is the more you know about a topic, the easier it becomes to bullshit somebody because you can say some jargon, some esoteric gibberish, that fills somebody's head with doubt and fear, and they think that you're the only answer. And that's where these vultures come from. These these, faith healers and and herbal medicine pushers and snake oil salesmen, these people who talk about things like, crystal therapy and acoustic therapy and 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 reiki and chakra manipulation and uh what's another one freaking uh, uh, the the fascia release massage and all these things like they just say some sort of scientific sounding word and you don't know what a crystal is And electromagnetic radiation that sounds pretty freaking crazy like i bet that's some powerful stuff it's light. It's free. That's the word for light. But it sounds crazy and I don't want that in my body. And so it's enough to get somebody who doesn't have a background in this field to, to think crazy things. In the same way, like I'm not up here on my high horse. I don't know shit about software engineering. If somebody came along to me and said, this is going to make the, if you click on this link, it'll change the code in your computer to make the, 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 the transistors backfire to to negatively (laughs) release... I'm I'm going to
1: get email on transistors. Yeah, seriously. If
2: if somebody told me that you don't want to manipulate the condensers in your whatever computer chakras, I wouldn't know if they're wrong. And I don't know to say, okay, well, maybe I don't need to click this link. Maybe I need to install this software. I don't know. I don't know. And if if it came from a trustworthy company, like, you know, pick one, like Avast or Norton Antivirus or whatever, like, and I'm probably going to get... You'll get comments about that. Don't trust those guys either. But as far as I know, they're good. And so this is how these people manipulate and they take advantage of people. And the problem is real scientists and real doctors teaching real science and real medicine are kind of boring to listen to by comparison. They're not sensational. They're not crazy. They're not over the top. There isn't a one quick fix that's going to make you drop body fat and get a six-pack abs and never get cancer and all your hair grows back and you have 30 more kids. And there's, there's just not an answer for that. There's nothing that does that. And you can't sell a diet book that says, yeah, just exercise regularly and eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. That's the best thing you can do. But honestly, it comes down a lot to genetics. And, and sometimes there's just nothing you can do about it. That's not gonna sell any newspapers. But I you know, farted on a ferret, and now I look like like Brad Pitt in the 90s. That absolutely is gonna
1: sell another magazine. I, I have to say, you are the exception to the scientists are boring rule. Thank I, you. I just have to throw that out. That up. means the world to me. Thank <laughs> you very much. Uh, I heard a scientist once say that scientists get famous not by proving themselves right, but by proving others wrong. I don't know how true that is, but is, I do yeah. like the idea <laughs> that a true scientist is. I mean, if you make a claim, you better get ready Mm. because people in that field are going to go and they're going to verify or try to verify the claim that you just made. For sure. Yeah.
2: That's the thing is that you, like I said, anybody can be a scientist. Absolutely anybody can, but be ready to be fact-checked and to be critiqued and to be criticized, and you better be ready to stand up to that. There are gonna be people who are in your field that know way more than you that are gonna agree with you and they are gonna disagree with you. And you better be ready to answer them both and not just fall in with this crowd because you like them and avoid that crowd because you don't, but be willing to listen to why and what's going on there. That's so incredibly important. And also, on top of that, Understand that there are for sure flaws in some peer review processes because they are humans. That's why we have lots of papers. There isn't one paper talking about evolution. There's millions of them and they're being made every single day and they all better work together. Otherwise we have a big issue, right? So you're absolutely right. Science is is something that is built around fact checking and verification and, and double checking and critique and criticism. That's the most important part of it
1: coming up with Forrest Valky. I'm going to talk about morality. We hear this a lot from the god believers, you know, well, if there is no god to tell you that it's bad to kill people, how do you know it's bad to kill people? I'm going to talk to Forrest Valky about our evolved morality. Coming up, in just a second.
0: 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at JoinMIDI.com.
3: With the Lucky Land Sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Subscribe to my second podcast. It's getting noticed out there and people are really enjoying themselves. It's called True Stories with Seth Andrews. About five minutes long, releasing three days a week. Just little vignettes about interesting stuff from hundreds of years ago or last week. True crime, weird news, science stuff, history. You never know what you're going to get. Search it on your app, True Stories. With Seth Andrews, continuing my conversation with evolutionary biologist, Forrest Valky. All right, I want to draw us back to evolution. Sure. Uh, why in the world would I ever know right from wrong? How would I know what a moral action is? If I'm Uh, evolved. Yeah, you evolved with them is the thing. Yeah, I mean, but that's one of the things that like if there wasn't an objective moral standard, meaning there was a standard bearer or giver, the intelligent designer, the first cause, the creator, call it what you want. How would you know that murder and rape weren't wrong if you are evolved? Yeah,
2: there's this really cool thing called empathy. uh, And you can very easily look at any other person or even think about any other person and know what would probably hurt them and if you're a good person you won't do those things that would hurt them like it's there's often i think there was that that Pengelet bit where he he talked about how like you know why don't i rape and murder everybody i want to i do I rape and murder everybody that I want to, and that number is consistently zero. I don't want to do those things to anybody because I know that that would hurt them. I don't want anybody doing that to me. I would feel terrible if I caused anybody that much pain. Why on earth would that be my instinct, you know? But does
1: that explain altruism, meaning that if I'm kind to you it's more likely to be reciprocal and fall back on me. I mean, so even true altruism might not exactly, but it still still works in the evolutionary model, right? For sure, and there's lots of different ways that we've tried to
2: account for altruism, because it is kind of a mystery, right? To say that like, why would I do something completely selfless if it doesn't help me pass along my genes? And yet, we have a huge amount of evidence of both reciprocal and non-reciprocal altruism. So say, something that I do for you in intention of getting something back, and also something that I do for you, even if it kills me, because it's the right thing to do. And we see, first of all, that term, right thing to do, is, you know, really heavy. But also, we see this going back even to things that couldn't possibly know the difference. Bacteria. There are studies showing bacteria that produce a toxin that kills all the other species of bacteria around them, and they die in the process. But because they did that, they just cleared up a whole bunch of new living space for the rest of their population to grow in. And so it's beneficial to the species for one of them to be able to do that. If they all did that, they'd die. But if at any given time, one of them could commit suicide and murder all of the other species around them at the same time, then that's better for everybody. So having that gene is good for the whole species. And that's something you hear like, I, I, I'm guilty of this. I know several times in this interview I've said, you had better be able to do X, Y, Z in this environment. And that's a colloquial term. I'm talking about the population. Because remember, individuals don't evolve. It's a population that evolves. And so like, as a species, as a population, as a group of this type of organism, had better be able to account for, accommodate for whatever it is, even if that is selection pressure within your group. If there's somebody who isn't beneficial to the group, maybe getting rid of that dude. If there's a, something out there that's hurting you, maybe you give of yourself to get everybody else forward and take care of that problem. And we see, you know, we talk about really what you would traditionally call uh, 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 empathy, morality, generosity, compassion, whatever. We see that in a tremendous amount of species, mainly mammals, um, dogs, cats, monkeys, you know, apes, rats, and mice, you name it. Um, we see that they have concepts of fairness. We see that they have grief, we see that they have love. Look at an elephant's funeral, it's insane. They understand life and death. They understand family bonds. They understand what it is to grieve somebody and to have that moment, that period of loss. Uh, you look at putting rats in little cages. Some of these experiments are very sad. Uh, you put a rat in a cage and you put another rat in a smaller cage. The one rat will help release the other one because they understand that that's uncomfortable, even if it costs them a food reward. Um, you have uh, uh, animals that you put in cages together and you give one of them a drug that causes them stomach pain and they kind of writhe and move around and uncomfortable, and the other one, the cage mate, will mimic those behaviors like they're kind of like, oh man, I get you, I feel you. And the longer they've been living together, the more they mirror those behaviors. We see a tremendous amount of different experiments showing empathy and compassion and sympathy and and kindness and generosity and altruism and forgiveness and all sorts of different things.
1: I'm still stuck on, they gave a... An stomach stomachache, like, I'm pissed. For science, yeah. Like, yeah. like <laughs> screw those guys. For science. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> but I understand, like, friends to Wallace has done a lot of, uh, you know, uh, talking about the social hierarchies, the yeah. politics of the animal kingdom, and I include the human animal as yeah. an animal because I came out of a culture where there are animals, uh-huh. and there's us, right? Yeah. And if I say we're an animal, then they usually say, well, we're mammals, but we're not really animals. Right, right. yeah. Because animals, are, that's a pejorative Right, right. It's
2: like saying, "Yeah, it's a sedan, but it's not really a car." Like, is, <laughs> it, what, what is that? Like, it's, it's silly.
1: All mammals are animals, y'all. <laughs> but, I mean, we see uh, even in the primate world. You know, you see the 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 caring for others. You see in group. Cohesiveness. For sure. You see the othering, the outgroups. I mean, certainly we see that in the human animal, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You see the evolution, the the evolved human being in grouping, outgrouping. You got any oh, yeah. commentary on that in this They're world? A huge amount.
2: Because like that, that's that's an area of so much psychological and neuroscientific research. It's it's insane. There's so much to learn there about how we treat each other and why. Because humans are very tribalistic creatures. And very often, people like to take that word and say, oh, so, so you know, we're, we're, we're racist or by or sexist or something like that by nature. No, we're tribalist. We are very good at saying, you're in my group, you're in my family, you're in my little clique here, and those people aren't over there, and so they're bad and they're evil. And there's a tremendous amount of fantastic experience. The one that I like to point to the most is that back in the 1970s, I want to say, there was a social psychologist named Henry Teifel, and he did a bunch of experiments on intergroup discrimination, where he would take people, and he would separate them by totally arbitrary means. He would say, how many dots do you see on this paper? Okay, well, you saw too many dots, you go over there, and you saw too few dots, you go over there. And in reality, it didn't matter. It was a flip of a coin. They didn't actually check the dots at all. And like, or they'd say, what kind of paintings do you like? Or something else like this. And the people in the experiment just came off the street... They know for sure that they've never met any other people in this room, and that they were just grouped by totally arbitrary, pretty much random means. It was really random. They have no reason to like these people that they're with, or to dislike those other people that they're not with. And yet, when they would start playing games, little social games, every single time, these people will go out of their way to screw over the other group, even if it hurt them. And the psychologist in the experiment would say, Why are you doing that? And they would say, well, because they're gonna do it to me, so I better do it first. No evidence for that. They just immediately assume the worst of these other people because they're not them. And there's even, like, if you read these papers, like, Typhail himself writes that, like, discriminatory behavior and hate were shockingly easy to trigger. It was disturbingly easy to get these people to hate each other just by separating them. And there are experiments with kids where you give them different colored jerseys and they will self-assemble into the little group because, well, they don't look, they're not wearing this shirt, but these people are, so I'm going to go stand over here. We just do that naturally, and we immediately assume the worst of the other people. And there's even better experience than that where like they would take people and put them in a brain scanner to measure their empathetic responses to seeing pain in other people. One of my favorite parts of the brain is the anterior cingulate gyrus. This is a gross oversimplification, but it's one of the areas of the brain that's pretty cool and it handles a lot of empathetic thinking. And so, again, Can't stress enough how much I'm dumbing this down, but you've got this somatosensory cortex back here, which is really important for, it's like they're my primary way that you feel things in your body. And then you've got this anterior cingulate gyrus up here, which mirrors a lot of what that does. So it's more like how you feel about what you're feeling. So if I think about being hurt, this can't activate, but this still does. If I think about my fiance being hurt, this still activates the exact same way as if I was thinking about it happening to me. And if I see somebody that I love being hurt, this part of my brain responds as if I'm the one being hurt. And so this is this empathetic response. And so what they did in these experiments, they would put people in brain scanners and they would take a Chinese population and an Australian population and put them in here. And they would show another person being poked in the face with a needle or something, causing them pain. And sure enough... Chinese people had a stronger response seeing other Chinese people than when they saw an Australian person. And Australian people had a stronger response seeing another Australian than another Chinese person. And people were like, aha, see, there's racism or something bred into us. But then there was the second half of that experiment where they took exchange students... Chinese people who have been living in Australia for years, Australians that have been living in China for years, and they showed them this and they had the exact same response no matter what this person was. Because it turns out, when you spend more time around different cultures, different ethnicities, different colors, different classes, different religions, different people, when you spend time with them and make them a part of your day to day life, your brain starts to see these people as people. And you start to say that this is part of my in-group too. This is part of my family. And there's more and more and more amazing research in psychology and neuroscience that shows that you can decide who your in-group is. You're going to be tribalistic. You're always going to say, these people are my in-group. I'm going to protect them fiercely. I'm going to love them no matter what. That's just what we are born to do. That's how we evolved. We are altruistic and compassionate in this way. But you can choose who that group is. And you can change it at any time. And you can, at any moment, decide, everybody is my family. We're all in this together. This whole world is part of me. I'm a part of this whole world. And you shift from an individualist mindset of, I am my own person, and I'm responsible for my own actions, and everybody else can fuck themselves, and this is just me. And you shift to a individualist mindset of, I'm the result of my community. These people gave rise to me, and not just the people, nature, everything around me. I'm the youngest one here. I'm the one with the most to learn. I am not that special. I'm here representing everybody. What happens to one of us happens to all of us. These are all part of me. And that changes the way that your brain works. And it makes you, in my opinion, a way cooler person. And it's something that anybody can do literally just by deciding to do it. And yes, it takes practice, not a switch, but like
1: That is something that more and more and more research shows. We can pick our groups. I'd like to live in that world, man. Oh, dude, me too. (laughs) Especially because we're now so hyper-factioned, and the the algorithm Mm -hmm. culture has allowed me, well, now I'm reinforced, well, now I'm over here, and now I've othered because I haven't really met people, but I've only seen the avatar, and now I'm going to throw things over the wall at them. And and, uh, then if your in-group betrays you, or you betray them, or somebody feels betrayed, then you go to another subgroup of a subgroup, What's the solution to that? I mean, our tribal tendencies are often amazing and necessary, but we're dragging our ancestral tribalism into this technological mess.
2: I have, I have a big love-hate relationship with social media because like I I can't overstate that there, there are a lot of problems with the proliferation of social media. There's a lot of dangers there and they they they're credible and they should be taken seriously. You talked about some of it right there is that when you have somebody who isn't a human in front of you, but just a face on a screen, or even worse, just a a profile picture, and you're behind the keyboard, it's very easy to dehumanize and to demonize that person, and to say horrible things you would never say to somebody in real life, and to hurt that person deeply, to assume the worst of that person. It's really easy to put ourselves in little clicks and little boxes, and pretend like everybody else is, is all evil, and that we're the only sane people in the whole wide world. There's lots, and that's not to count for all the other myriad of issues. Again, so many problems with social media, they should be taken seriously. However, the cool side to that is, number one, the proliferation of social media is a reflection of how the best revolutions in history have happened. The best changes, political, social, whatever, in history have been because we've had a better, easier time of hearing from one another, of talking to one another, of sharing ideas with one another. This is not just some random person going through something. This is Jerry... And I can see his pain and his struggles. I can see inside his house. I can hear what he's saying from his own mouth. You, know? you look at like, the civil rights movement. The newspapers all said these evil, terrible black people are out here burning down cities and, 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 and raping white women and doing all this stuff. But then you could turn on the TV and you could see, oh, they're sitting on the ground and people are sicking dogs on them. Who's really at fault here? Like what's, what's really going on? You look at what's going on in Iran right now. The government shut down all news and all all social media and all internet. They don't want anybody knowing about. They're out. You're saying America is messing with us, and it's the, the 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 atheists and the they're trying to take over and trying to hurt us. But then these people can get on TikTok and say, hey, they're killing students for speaking out. They they just stopped this filmmaker from leaving the country. He's in prison because he's not he wanted to speak out against the government. They are hurting us, and all we want to do is is be equal and you know not wear a head headscarf or whatever like. The, the best changes in history happen because of this. And yes, it does put us in the boxes a little bit. It, 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 it kind of isolates us somewhat. But the benefit is that if we don't let it isolate us, if, if we allow this categorization, categorization scheme just, just a little bit, then what it does is it shares our identities. And it makes it so that I'm not just another random face. Yes, I am black, Hispanic, uh, LGBT, you know, Native American, whatever it may be. Yes, I am in this minority group that you've heard so much about. Here's my name. Here's who I am. Here's what I like to eat for breakfast. And now all of a sudden I'm a person. And now we can identify as these groups and also we can identify with these groups. We can find commonality and common ground.
1: Well, don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not not knocking social media. What I do is possible because of the internet. (laughs) You you and me both, yeah. And I, you know, I love my MySpace account. It's it's really (laughs) Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, it's, it's an interesting challenge. Being aware of it, though, seems to be the first step. Yeah. Uh, being aware be of how I'm evolving. I'm going to bring it back to evolution here. I'm as, down as with we that. we draw to a close. Um, can I take control of my own evolution? Is and We're self-aware. So am I intervening in my own... So, if you're using the word in the strict sense of like bioevolution, no. But like, unless you have kids, but that that, that, that's neither here nor there. As far as like, because I'm an individual, I don't evolve. Exactly. in Groups. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I am teachable. For it. Right. Go ahead. But in
2: terms of like your social evolution, in terms of like who you are as a person and where our society is going, in terms of
1: that, absolutely. I mean, beyond the philosophy stuff. I mean, physically. Yeah. Can we go in and change what humans will look like in? 500 years. There's always evolution as long as there's reproduction. And all we've
2: done over the past like, eh, around about 2.6 million years, especially the past like 20,000 years, all we've been doing is changing the selection pressures put upon us. So like right now, you and I are more concerned about one of these cameras dying than being eaten by a lion. That is because we've changed the selection pressures by building houses and things like this, right? And so that is kind of the name of the game for like the past little while in human evolution but we are still evolving and we still see trends. For example, humans are getting taller and taller because we have easier access to more constant nutrition. Uh, We're getting bigger and bigger heads because we have cesarean sections now and you don't have to fit a watermelon-sized head out the uh, cervix the size of a quarter, right? So like, we have a lot of better ways to live and those, again, better subjective, but and that causes evolution to shift, but we are always still evolving. And there's a thing called rights rule, which means we can never predict speciation even if we can tell what the trend is. So like, we can't say we're gonna evolve into this thing next. Also, the concept of species is incredibly fuzzy and doesn't really mean anything, so there's that too, whatever. But what we can do is take responsibility for ourselves, and that's important. Um, One of the last times you and I spoke, we talked about uh, over the past 2.6 million years, humans have been changing themselves by their technology. We are cyborgs by nature, right? We look back at the earliest uh, point of the genus Homo, around 2.6 to 2.8 million years ago, and you have the first Oldowan choppers. We started making the first stone tools. For those in the audience who are nerds, there is something called the Lamequian tools, which are a little older than that. I'm not a fan. It doesn't matter. The point is (laughs) that, that, that we have these Oldowan tools, the beginning of the genus Homo. We start making these tools that allow us access to better resources. And we now have a slightly different selection pressure acting on us. We now have new nutrients that we didn't have access to before. And this allows us to fuel better brain development until around a million years later, Homo erectus comes along and finds out you can sharpen both sides of a rock. And that was a very exciting development. And now we have even better technology, which gives us better resources, which allows us to evolve in the direction of making better technology. And over and over and over over the course of human evolution for the past million, a couple million years, We've seen better technology, bigger brains, and then better technology, and then bigger brains, and then better technology. And then all of a sudden you have the Neanderthals and their cool ass lavawa points, and they're doing really cool stuff, and they have bigger and bigger brains. And like, it goes on this way until now, we have this around us with air conditioning, and cars, and vaccines, and and helicopters. Like, this is just part of being human. And what's really cool to think about, a big part of my research, is something called niche construction theory, which is the idea that you change the environment you're living in and then evolve into that environment. And so you're constructing the niche that you are evolving into. You look at this concept of the extended phenotype. Um, Think about like a beaver, for example. A beaver builds a dam, and that changes the environment that it's living in. Upstream, this river is now turning into a lake. New animals are moving in, new plants are moving in, life and geology fundamentally changes in this area. And downstream, it's the same story in the other direction. The stream is drying up, it's getting smaller, totally new species are moving in this area, things die because of this, things are born because of this. This beaver building this dam changed everything around it. And the building of the dam is an instinctual behavior. It's something encoded in that beaver's DNA. So the dam and the river and the ecology of this whole ecosystem and the geological changes because the river is no longer carving in the right direction, all of these things are an extension of that beaver's DNA. A part of what it means to be a beaver. And now we look at today with us and we look at all the best things and worst things that come along with humanity. We see all the starvation and all the drought and all of the habitat destruction and all the anthropogenic climate change and also all the space exploration and the Mars rovers and the vaccines and the medicine and the amazing industries we've built and the cities and the skyscrapers. All of these are our extended phenotype. They're part of the tools that we evolved to make. We made the tools and the tools made us in return. And now as a result, We have this world that we're living in and all the changes that come along with it. This is a part of what it means to be a human, an extension of our DNA. And what we get to do now is grow the hell up and decide what we're going to make that look like. Instead of just having it be a causal thing that, oh, I wonder what's going to happen in the next 20 years, we can decide how many people are we going to let starve to death anymore. How much are we going to fuck up the planet anymore? How many people are we going to let be homeless anymore? How many rivers are we going to let dry up anymore? How many ecosystems are we going to destroy anymore? How about we make it a little bit better? Not just for us, but for everybody else. And for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Because the myth that we inherit this Earth is nonsense. We borrow this Earth from future generations. So let's make it nice for us and for them. We can make that decision.
1: And I don't think that that's a crazy ask. You know what I mean? I can't think of a better place to finish. <laughs> Forrest Falchi, you're amazing. You're a, a wonderful guest. Thanks so for much having for me. talking to me, man. It was a lot of fun, man. Thanks for having me. Let's do it again sometime.
0: Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring the Thinking Atheist logo, links to Atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com